This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wongal people and the Yagara Turrbal peoples. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Strap in. Buckle up. It's story time, folks. This is Australiana Rama. Morning. This episode contains swear words, as usual. And British colonialism. Ow. <laughs> All right. Maddie, hello. <laughs> How the bloody hell are you? I'm pretty good, you know. Pretty I'm, good. I'm ready to learn something, I think. Today. Always ready to learn, to be honest. Mm. Almost mm. always. Almost, yeah. And I mean, I think I'm ready. And then uh, the stuff you tell me, I listen, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then it flies right out of my head. Well, that's why we record these things down. Um, not, that's for our, true. not for our loyal <laughs> listeners, but for you and me, because uh, yeah. <laughs> our memory retention well, was quite bad. Every time I edit it back, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You <laughs> um, guys, guys, a bit of a um, BTS, you know, for the Ozrama fandom out there a bit of a behind the scenes mm, behind insight the curtain, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, oh dear. i'm excited for this one because you know it's coming out on uh valentine's day and it's very relevant for valentine's day mm. not because we're talking yeah. about love but we're talking about a particular person <laughs> who mm. uh, died on v-day so <laughs> Mm. <laughs> the other the other v day yeah there's there's a couple things to celebrate on the 14th of february yeah love is one this is another yeah you know mm. some may say this is the primary reason to celebrate but anyway here we go mm. <laughs> each their own <laughs> okay before we dive into this though it's kind of important to note that a lot of what i will be recounting is debatable. So there are accounts from various historians as well as people on the ground and people who weren't there that kind of contradict each other. So what I've tried to do is tell the story that is, you know, decided on through multiple sources. Like a few people have agreed on these things. And then when it's been a little bit, you know, debatable, I'm going to try and highlight that as well. But for this particular story, it's important to note that because we're dealing with uh, white people in countries where they were kind of just doing what they want and saying what they want. So let's go. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Great. All right. Noted. Ready. Yeah. James Cook was born in Yorkshire on the 27th of October, 1728. He joined the Royal Navy as an ordinary seaman (laughs) in 1756, and he quickly (laughs) climbed the leadership ladder. So somehow, like, calling it seaman is funnier than, like, seaman. Yeah, very funny. Which is what it is, but, like, seaman is funnier. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so he's a seaman, a regular a, or an ordinary? Well, he ordinary was. One. He was an ordinary seaman. Mm, okay, regular seaman. <laughs> but he becomes a, a big deal pretty quickly. You okay. Know, he's very good at the ships and all of that. 
Mm-hmm. So Cook's first voyage around the world was in the ship Endeavour and lasted from 1768 to 1771 and included surveying New Zealand, the east coast of Australia and part of New Guinea. Then during 1772 to 75, so a few years later, he does his second voyage around the world in the ship's Resolution and Adventure and he visited many Pacific islands during this time. Mm-hmm. So... He then embarks on this third voyage into the Pacific, and there is evidence in many of his officers' journals of Cook showing more violent behavior and poor judgment during this time. And there already is evidence of violent behavior and poor judgment, but things started Mm. to escalate, even according to his peers and the people who once looked up to him. Um, Mm. You know, British people and American people working with him, even they are starting to question some of the things that are happening. And this includes both towards his own men, so aggression towards his own men, Mm. and towards the people that they met along the way. He started Mm. burning down towns and sinking canoes. um, Damn. So it's not just like being rude to your staff. It's pillaging, Pillaging, burning. burning. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And he often kind of claimed that this would be in retaliation to theft of their goods, but that's not always the case. And also, mm. like, he had a relationship of bartering with people that he met in their mm. native countries. Um, so then, like, he would revisit and they would attempt to barter and he'd be like, actually, no. And then he'd kind of flip the story and say, oh, they were stealing. When it's like, well, actually, you had a pre-existing relationship where you traded goods. Mm. And so it became this kind of one-way street where things escalated actually quite quickly. So, in January 1778, Cook and his crew became the first Europeans to visit Hawaii. In the first few days of his encounter with the Hawaiians, a warrior by the name of Kapapuu um, took some iron from the ship and was subsequently shot and killed. Later that evening, there's reports that shots were heard coming from the ship as well as a display of fireworks. And this is a report from Hawaiians um, that has been Mm. retold through oral and then written history. And it's often in these histories perceived that it was kind of a display of force and a bit of a a threat. Yeah. Yes. Um, Initially, there are also reports from Hawaiians um, as well that upon first seeing and hearing these activities that some people thought it might have been Lonumakuai, which is a deity um, who was a keeper of fire. And that caused a bit of confusion. Um, the chiefly mother on the, I- on the island, this particular island they were on, because there are multiple islands, um, encouraged the locals to appease the deity rather than engage and fight and she actually sent her own granddaughter as a woman for cook they named cook um lono as well so if you hear the word lono they're referring to james Cook. that's what they called him yeah okay so in sources recorded in the hawaiian language there is evidence of deliberation planning and decision making Um, on the Hawaiian's behalf, so people actually trying to resolve conflict. And this is often Mm. missing in the English language accounts where, you know, there's kind of some generalized stereotypes around uncivilized, quote-unquote, behavior. Mm. 
Cook and his crew left after not a long period of time and sailed around the islands exploring as well as trying to establish a passage north towards America, but were not particularly successful and ended up returning and anchoring a year later in a particular bay on the 17th of January, 1779. This time, Cook's arrival coincided with a big festival um, in which many European historians theorized that Cook, without realizing, was acting out a Hawaiian legend and um, (laughs) the Hawaiians believed that he was this godlike figure and that the word lono meant god and this has been heavily contested since so for Mm. a long period of time there was this story where it was like the hawaiians worshipped him and really liked him (laughs) Mm. but that has been contested by both written and oral histories so there is actually an article by noelani arista and she is the associate professor of hawaiian and american history at the university of hawaii manoa And she, I'm just actually going to quote her directly because Mm, she describes it perfectly. So (laughs) the following epigraph is a written record of what Hawaiians on Hawaii Island heard when they encountered James Cook and his men after they sailed into Hawaii. (laughs) And basically there's a series of words, which is like panaka oleo, akaloholai, wakapoha aloha, um, aloha heihei, aloha kaiwahin, aloha kei, and anyway (laughs) she explains that she's like the first these strings of words are actually onomatopoeic and incomprehensible they're not actually most of them are not hawaiian words Mm. and so (laughs) they're actually like what the europeans thought they were kind of recounting in hawaiian language were actually the Mm. hawaiians being like they are speaking gibberish (laughs) and you know Ah. so they're basically being like Mm. yeah (laughs) Um, which is why I was like, oh, That's yeah, great. I'm going to confidently read this out because I'm not butchering a language. Yeah. They're literally gibberishing. <laughs> <laughs> but then the final string of words, you know, you would have recognized aloha and stuff like that. Um, mm. They are examples of amusing and awkward attempts at language. Mm. That they made. And so while Cook and his men might have resembled, <laughs> um, you know, deities due to the fireworks and stuff like that, the Hawaiians, you know, like cottoned onto things mm. very quickly and wrote all these mm. accounts where they said that they sounded little better than children when they attempted to speak the Hawaiian language. Mm. So we can dispute these, you know, portrayals really, really quickly. Yeah. So Noalani writes, the idea or suggestion that the native Hawaiians considered Cook to be the god Lono himself is considered to be inaccurate and is attributed to William Bly, who was a British person who worked on these ships. It is conceivable Mm. that some Hawaiians may have used the name of Lono as a metaphor when describing Cook or other possible explanations other than Hawaiians simply assuming the explorer was their own deity. So it was a joke. Yeah. The whole thing. Mm. Hilarious. (laughs) Um, What isn't contested, however, across both Mm. the um, Hawaiian accounts as well as the American and British accounts is that tensions soon developed after this between Cook and his crew and the locals. His crew started taking food supplies from the islands and there were limited supplies because, you know, you're Mm. on an island, like there's not heaps of places to go to get food as well as wooden images and fences from sacred 
burial areas to use for firewood. So they were literally destroying, yeah, destroying really important sites. And as this big festival that was happening was ending, confrontations increased and Cook decided to leave for a second time. And he was like, I'm getting out of here. However, Mm -hmm. his two ships were in poor condition and he had to return literally like four or five days later. Mm. which was not his plan. No. So they anchor back in the same bay, and when this happens, a longboat was stolen from the resolution by the Hawaiians. To demand it back, Cook attempted to kidnap the ruling chief of the island. This is something that he'd done before in other countries to demand the return Mm. of quote-unquote stolen goods. Um, and he'd done that in other parts of the Pacific and potentially in Australia mm. as well. Damn. Yeah. John Ledyard, an American explorer who joined James um, on his third voyage, writes in his journal. This is a quote. Our return to this bay was disagreeable to us as it was to the inhabitants, for we were reciprocally tired of each other. They had been oppressed and were weary of our prostituted alliance. It was equally evident from the looks of the natives, as well as every other appearance, that our friendship was now at an end, that we had nothing to do but to hasten our departure to some different island where our vices were not known and where our intrinsic virtues might gain us another shot, short space of being wondered at. Damn. So it's like literally, at least he's self-aware. It's like, we are the worst. Yeah. These people know we're the worst. Yeah. If we go somewhere else for a little while, it will take them a little while to figure out that we're the worst. Yeah, so he's self-aware, but he's also like a bit of a dick towards the end where he's like, oh yeah, rather than dick. change our behavior, we'll just do it for short periods of time and yeah, then leave we'll without the consequences. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but There's he's no, no plan yeah, to be less oh, worth. One step closer to like understanding the problem than james cook was mm. evidently but yeah. still oh man <laughs> that's no good so like, oh, yeah. it seems like people hate me here they'll hate me the next place they go but it'll, they won't on site you know yeah it's also important to note that this um account of theft is very much according to british accounts as well mm. and it's unclear what the level of theft may have been was it mm. theft was it bartering Did it happen at all? Yeah. Interesting. Yes. So essentially, together with his crew, on the morning of February 14th, 1779, Cook woke Kalianai the elder chief urging him to come to the ships. So this is the chief that he's attempting to steal. And Cook Mm. escorts him and potentially even restrains him and held his hands himself. Um, But on the way there, members of the local community noticed what was going on and tried to warn the chief, and they were kind of calling out. By the time they got to the beach, the chief's two youngest sons um, had been following their father, then began to climb into the boats that were waiting at shore. But then this chaos kind of ensues where they start to realise what's going on, Um, One of the chief's wives supposedly was shouting at them to say, like, get out of the boat. They're actually trying to steal you. And then so the chief realizes that that's happening. And he supposedly just sat Mm. down and was like, nope, 
You can't take me. I'm sitting down. Mm. This then escalates into a full-on confrontation. So the beach is now filled with um, either hundreds or thousands, it's unclear, of native Hawaiians. That is also disputed because it's potentially that it's, it, there's a potential that the British kind of um, inflated the amount of people. Mm. Yes, to make it seem that Cook was under more threat. So we don't know. Mm. Cook told the chief to get up, but he refused. And as the Hawaiians gathered around them, um, things became a little bit more violent and Cook and his men began to back away from the hostile crowd, but they did raise their guns. Mm. Cook is still trying to get the chief up to his feet, um, but it, it's potentially that one of the sons or one of the other native people from the area approached Cook, who then reacted by striking the chief with the broad side of his sword. And then, in, yeah, so then as a response, this person jumped at Cook. They grab him. Um, some accounts state that like cook didn't mean to hit the chief but whatever only some accounts state that oh whoops i accidentally hit you with my sword yeah how do you accidentally hit someone with a sword (laughs) i don't think it can be done yeah but regardless you know cook is pushed to the ground and then he is stabbed fatally um it's unclear what kind of happens after this immediately you know some Mm. people say that a lot of fighting then happened afterwards um some people say that there wasn't that much violence but it does appear that there was some kind of close quarters melee between the crew and Mm. the hawaiians four of the royal marines um corporal james thomas and Private Theophilus Hinks, Thomas Fatchett, and John Allen were killed, and two others were mm-hmm. wounded. There are, there's no evidence of how many Hawaiians were killed or wounded, mm. but naturally we can assume that they probably were. Mm. The remaining um, sailors and crew were supposedly quite outnumbered and they continued to fire their guns and they retreated to their small boats and rowed back to the ship. Um, we do know that they definitely killed some people. We just don't know how many. <laughs> they also mm. potentially killed the high chief as well. Mm. Cook's ships did not leave the bay until the 22nd of February. So they stayed around for a while and they stayed around to try and continue to repair the boat and also collect drinking water so that when they left, Mm. they didn't die. Yeah. Yeah, because that's why they'd come back in the first place because the ship was dodgy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So William Bly, who was a young bloke at the time who worked on one of the ships, he actually became... Um, the captain of HMS Bounty later in his life. He, after the fact, claims that he'd been watching all of this through a spyglass from the ship resolution, and he said that he saw Cook's body dragged up to a hill and torn to pieces by Hawaiians. That's what he reckons? That's what he reckons, yep. Okay. We don't know if that happened or not, but we do know that um, after Cook's death... 
parts of his body were returned to the British and buried at sea. And then his crew completed their journey back to England. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) So after all this happened, um, James Cook's death was met with great grief in Britain because he was this legacy figure. He brought all of this knowledge and information from foreign lands for people to study and to write about. Um, And he was celebrated through a touring pantomime. So they literally did a show about his death in Covent Garden. Wow. About So it's not just like... He's on a boat looking at stuff. It's about his death. Yep. It was called The Grand Serious Pantomime of Captain Cook. And it was a, a ballet and it like it originated in Paris and then went to London in Covent Garden. And then it appeared in New York, Charleston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Boston. So it did an international tour. Wow. Yep. And they um, depicted scenes of his death it was wordless, apparently, so they didn't speak. And mm-hmm. this is where some um, historians believe that the image, the stereotypical image of hula girls and, you know, the kind of like romanticized hula girl image mm. started to become an international icon. Ah. Yes. From what sounds like a really terrible show about Captain Cook. Yeah. So they do this weird ending where it's all very artistic and once he's died they um, erect this pole to commemorate him and rather than being like a British flag his the bones of him are laid out um, and the quote-unquote natives pay homage to the grave and they leave like presents of bananas and coconuts and a hog. Um, And then when they move it over to America, they even extend this ending even more so where a series of hula girls do this kind of mournful dance, you know, because they're mourning Captain Cook at the end. It's just like this really inconvenient tragedy that happens and even the, Mm. the native Hawaiians are grieving. That's so weird. And I assume that they did not. I assume that it was like... British people or American people acting <laughs> all of these. Oh, 100%. You 100%. Know, like, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what a, a grieving hula ballet looks like, but I don't care to know. <laughs> I was just going to say I don't care to. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a lot of this story um, has actually only come to light in recent years. And part of that is because of a not like new concept, but a relatively new concept in history, which is called source criticism. Source criticism, as explained by historyskills.com, is a set of skills that allow you to think carefully about the nature of historical sources. Rather than simply accepting what sources say, these skills help you to develop a healthy skepticism about the reasons a source was made and whether you can trust it. And the theory, like the process of which you go through, is called IOPCAM. And that stands for information, origin, perspective, context, audience, motive. And that helps you determine the usefulness or the reliability 
of sources. So this is something that is happening all around the world. It's something that mm. is happening in Australia. You know, the, the original tellings of what happened when Cook landed in Botany Bay is now being challenged through various um, oral histories, but also written histories from the mm. perspective of Indigenous people and Australian Aboriginal people. So it was not actually until 1838 that Hawaiian accounts of Cook's visit started to be collected, edited, and published. And it was mostly mostly by American missionaries. So mm. there was a specific missionary called Sheldon Dibble, and he um, set about to collect a series of histories, and he actually wrote them down and collated them and published them in the Hawaiian language and he published this book called Hawaiian History and of the 32 sections three sections were dedicated to James Cook um, including his various arrivals and interactions and also what people think happened to his bones Mm. and his body so this is a closer account but even then it's still being done through the perspective of a missionary Mm. and then another instance of um source criticism occurring happened actually quite recently only a few years ago where a series of paintings went up for re-auction so the death of cook was it's it's actually quite a famous painting um, created by john weber and he was the official voyage artist so he was very Mm. much retelling things through the perspective of the people doing the voyage and it shows cook with his back to the mob, like he's, you know, turned away from the violence and he's like nobly signaling out to his ships to cease fire. And the men that are attacking him are armed with spears and clubs and things like that. And this was a painting that was used to tell this story for years and years and Mm. years, including in history books here in Australia. However, there is a different version of the same scene, a different painting painted by John Cleveley, um, also called The Death of Cook. And it is actually based on first-hand accounts and sketches by his brother, who was a carpenter on one of the ships with Cook. Mm. And this one shows Cook fighting desperately for his life. And he, in this image, Cook is about to club an islander with the butt of his rifle, Mm. which confirms that other testimony about him hitting the chief. Mm. Um, Most of the islanders have heavy clubs and rocks, um, but they don't have spears. And there is, it's a lot more integrated, like the violence between the two parties and there's also bodies of hawaiians as well Mm. so this painting was made in 1784 but the time it was engraved and published for the public to see only a couple years later the artist john cleveley had died and the Mm. engraving was altered to match the official british version of the story interesting yeah and so it was only when this painting went up for auction a couple years ago where notes on the back of his paintings were discovered and it said that they were based off of his brother's sketches and depictions of the scene and they were actually able to Mm. trace these depictions and completely recontextualize this work and so Mm -hmm. now 
from a history perspective, this painting is seen to be more accurate. It's still through a British lens, so it's not mm. perfect. But, yeah. So mm. it is a story that is, you know, full on in many ways, but is continuing to evolve through the process of source criticism, but also through actual, like, Hawaiians being able to tell the story, including mm. really amazing academics um, who are collating oral and written histories mm. and disproving certain things that happened. So certain things that, you know, didn't happen but supposedly happened. So, yeah, I'm sure that we'll learn a lot more about this um, in the next few years. So this is kind of, you know, a piecing together of accounts that could be disproven, but this is kind of the information we have right now, at least mm. at my fingertips from uh, here in Australia. So, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. the life and death, but mostly death, of Captain James mm. Cook. Mm. That's good. Like it's, you know, not any information that I learnt in primary school, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, they don't tend to mm. um, tell this bit. Well, actually... Some schools do. Maybe tell, they do now. They do now. But when we were there, mm. absolutely not. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I don't remember anything in great detail that I was taught about Old Mate, to be honest. No, I have lots of pictures in my brain of particular yeah. paintings, which is why I wanted to include this painting because so mm. much of what we learn in school to do with Captain Cook and colonization and settlement is in relation mm. to these grand historical paintings. And so when one is suddenly challenged through source criticism and actually turns out mm. to be nonsense because there's another painting that is mm. more accurate, like that's really fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's only between two Western British artists. Like when you actually go through sources from First Nations people all around the Pacific and Australia and New Zealand, mm. um, you know, the challenges become even more grand. So, yeah, it's really yeah. – we're in an interesting time where, yeah, the way we think about history is changing. Mm. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. And can attest to um, source criticism being in the national curriculum. So, you know. There you go. Hopefully schools are getting a bit better at understanding perspective and context – when teaching these mm. things. Yeah. Yeah. Great. This is by far one of our more intelligent episodes, <laughs> um, which I've really enjoyed. Um, and that does lead me to me doing the opposite for our next episode. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, I thought I'd do, you know, Neighbours. Oh, Because it could be yes. cancelled. Yes. Long-running Australian soap. Which I actually don't think I've ever seen an episode of Neighbours. Oh, really? Can't it's say been the same. on in the background, but like when I was a kid, we had really bad Channel Ten reception, so I didn't watch Channel mm -hmm. Ten. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, you'd go to someone's house and maybe it's on. And, you know, if I wanted to watch it every single day, now I still could. Yeah, my family were. Yeah, my family were not a Neighbours family, but I remember. Mm it being a really big deal in grade six or seven at school. And so I started watching it just on mm. my lonesome around that time. So I had a brief yeah. neighbor's stint. 
because mm, people watched it, but like my grandma really liked Home and Away. Mm, yeah, I think so you're one of the child, other. I've definitely, definitely seen Home and Away. Mm-hmm. But also, I think because we didn't really have neighbours, like actual neighbours, like our house didn't, our fence there was no one else around, so I feel like it wasn't relatable. Yeah. But yeah. now I do, so maybe. Yeah, or well, yeah, the source material might be much closer to home. Yeah, I'll do, I'll, Literally. Be, I'll, I'll try and I'll do a bit of a history of it, but also I'll try and watch a couple of episodes. I'll see if I can find a Kylie Minogue one that's more to my taste, I think. Excellent. Anyway, so that'll be in, in two weeks. Next episode will be about neighbours. I'm excited to learn about neighbours becoming good friends. Mm. I hear that's what happens. Yep. There's one good neighbours. It's pretty catchy. So just as a bit of a um, cheeky tidbit from the world of Batuta, a very near and dear friend of mine who sounds exactly the same as me, Les Burley Griffin, (laughs) will be appearing on the Batuta Advocates' um, new political podcast called Decode. And Les, who I hear is just a top, top lass, will basically be doing a weekly wrap-up of the news, the political news that's happened in Australia, which if you've gone on the internet even once in the last fortnight, you would know is quite juicy at the moment. Mm. It's cooked. So, yeah, I look forward to listening to that every week. And if you're interested, you know, follow our good friends, the Batuta Advocate and their Decode podcast. can be found on all podcast networks. Um, See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Bye. My sources for today were The Guardian, The National Archives, United Kingdom, um, an article by Noelani Arista, who was the Associate Professor of Hawaiian American History at the University of Hawaii Manoa, the ABC, Wikipedia, and historyskills.com. Cool.